You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. I feel like who art Ed? Who art Ed? Mr. Wood art Ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I have Dr. Lex, the host of the Lux Sci podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, yeah, no problem. It's a pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. And I am delighted to be talking about somebody who knows so much about all the things I like to pretend I kind of know a thing or two about. You are a doctor of microbiology and immunology. Yes. And But what I like is on your podcast, you're covering the fun aspects of science. You're teaching us why are sapphires blue and other colors, right? They come in other yeah. colors as well. In a lot of other colors, yeah. <laughs> and I like that you're always answering that question of why, because I, I, I'm curious about things. I like to learn about things. I want to know not just what is, but why it is. And I appreciate that you give that to me in your podcast. Uh, thank you. It's part of the reason we started it. My husband and I are are both scientists. We're both innately curious people. And we also have a young kid. And as your listeners with young kids know that the why is a constant question. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I am also really happy that today we're talking about Cezanne and mm-hmm. we're getting into the arts. And one of the things growing up, I would always hear that phrase, it's more an art than a science and stuff like that. But <laughs> I feel like art and science are so similar. I don't know yeah. why they get separated in people's minds because I don't either. both are a process of experimentation and learning and building off of the things that came before. And I think in a lot of ways, Cezanne is a good artist to talk about that process mm-hmm. and that growth. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me that so many people are surprised that scientists are generally relatively artistic people too. Yeah. And then I would say the same thing, especially I think with the impressionists or post-impressionists, right. It was all about nature and painting outside. And, um, and I, and I think they're sort of pseudo naturalists. If you look at, you know, Van Gogh's studies of irises or sunflowers, like I, I think there really is a naturalist component to that or a little bit of a scientist and the artist as well. Oh, absolutely. They were very much focused on, on optics and how we perceive color and the way that it affects the mood and all of that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And yeah. so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, so and, the, and the light. I mean, I think 
if I if I think about my first introduction to impressionists, like the use of light was was really I think what struck me the most. In, oh, in absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's what got me interested in it as as well. Like I at first at a young age, just seeing the colors and, mm. and seeing the effect of those different colors juxtaposed or put next to each other. But then as I got older, the the idea of color being different wavelengths of light and all of that, like yeah. just it blew my mind <laughs> in in a way that like it took me. If I'm being honest, it took me years to really understand those concepts. Like it was first introduced to me in elementary school, and like I, I just remember hearing hearing about it and just like calling for a timeout and just being like, "That cannot be. That cannot be right." I know that's what the book says, but like, what's really happening here? It it took me a long time to really understand yeah. that. Do you remember when you found out that black was actually the absence of color? I was like, what? Well, that or that black, black is the absence of color in an additive color model, but all of the colors mixed together make black because of subtractive methods that Mm -hmm. are, you know, absorbing some of the wavelengths of light and reflecting others. And again, (laughs) I'm so happy that I have someone to nerd out with me on this stuff. Uh, as we're going to get into Cezanne. And I always like to start off with a little bit of the biography, because I think, yeah. you know, when I just read about an artist and they created this, it, it it feels very dry to me. And where I get interested is the story. So mm-hmm. with his story, he's born in um, 1839, January 19th, to be specific. His father was a banker. And I think this is one of those things that right off the bat, it kind of tells you something because so many artists we read about and it's like, oh, they were struggling. Like Van Gogh, we referenced earlier, like Van Gogh was choosing between buying food or paint. And Mm -hmm. often he, he made the choice that Darwin would not have expected. Um, (laughs) Darwin Darwin didn't study artists. (laughs) He would have had a different theory. Yeah. (laughs) But but, uh, you know, Cezanne was a very fortunate mm-hmm. artist. He grew up the son of a banker. Even at that time, you know, uh, bankers were pulling in a pretty healthy paycheck. I think his family actually, like, had their own bank. That Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that Cezanne's father wanted him to take over eventually. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that would lead to some tension later on. Yeah, but, I can see that. You know, he had a relatively privileged childhood. Um, He's able to go to good schools. He went to the college bourbon, um, which was probably not as fun as it would sound. Like, that sounds like an Animal House type situation. I'm I'm envisioning, like, lots of, you know, wood-oaked, nice bourbons, but um, that's probably not what that was. (laughs) Yeah. But... While he's in school, he's making friends with Emile Zola and mm. um, Baptistine Bale. I cannot uh, pronounce it. Bye. Thank you. Yeah, double L is an I sounded French. Okay. See, this is why I'm talking to someone in Europe right now because <laughs> you are living your best life traveling through Greece and <laughs> – I am here in my basement bunker recording <laughs> on Zoom. Um, I cannot, I can, I can never get a, a French name right. Or well, an American. Really anything. Try, 
the Greek ones are tongue twisters. And <laughs> but what's interesting is like even as a child, he's growing up with these other artists. You know, mm. Zola was a writer, and Bai went on to teach optics and acoustics, wow. which so you cool. know seems like yeah. a little bit of foreshadowing there. Yes, <laughs> but. Cezanne's father wanted him to go into the family business, run the bank. He started off studying law, the respectable income-producing career path. But he always felt that pull towards the arts. And so he he continued studying art on the side. In 1859, his dad bought an estate. Uh, It translates to House of the Wind. It's like... Jade de Buffon. It's pretty good. There you go. <laughs> Getting it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like Cezanne absolutely loved this estate. Uh, it's a it's a grand place in I region uh, yes. of France. Um AIX. Ix. Yeah, she pronounced yeah, it's or maybe that one's always been a hard one for me. I don't think I've ever successfully pronounced that the name of that part of France. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to work to avoid pronouncing it for the rest of the episode, although it does come up. Um, (laughs) He lived there for years, and he loved painting that house, the trees around it. In 1860, his dad actually gave him permission to paint big murals in the drawing room. Ooh, nice. So it's not like a situation where his dad was saying, forget all about the arts. But he definitely wanted him to do something else professionally. And so in 1861, when Zola urged Cezanne to dedicate himself fully to art, mm. that did lead to a falling out with his father. Um, yeah, they did reconcile. The gist oh, of it seems to have been that basically his dad approved once Paul agreed that he was going to dedicate himself earnestly to studying the arts. So it wasn't going to be like a situation of, I am a rich kid. I'm going to, you know, live off the family wealth and maybe every once in a while I'll make a painting that can hang up in a cafe and I'll call myself an artist. Like he wasn't that like hipster stereotype. Like he legitimately studied art and he did like he, he not only went to art school, um, although he was rejected from art school. Two times. Oh, oh, man. Um, he he did go to art school. He persisted with it. He took that study seriously, and he continued in his studio practice to be very methodical. I mean, like when we talk about other people of that day, like Monet mm. was trying to capture his first impression and paint as quickly as he could to capture that fleeting light. Cezanne right. was much more methodical. He would take yeah. take much more time developing his compositions. You can tell too. The style is, it does feel very different from, you know, others that were going on at the time. Although, you know, what's interesting to me as you were, as you were talking, I was sort of thinking that so many of the really great French artists of the time had that sort of place that they went for inspiration, right? So for yeah. it was Arles for Van Gogh and it was uh, Giverny uh, for Monet, the gardens at, mm-hmm. um, at his place in Giverny. So it's, it's interesting that the, there's this kind of they're painted elsewhere but there's these these poles to um kind of a natural setting that they felt really comfortable in yeah i think that's a really good point and i think 
you know, it makes sense, the repetition of these similar subjects. We're going to be talking mm-hmm. about Cezanne's painting of um, Mount St. Victor- Mount St. Victory. I don't know. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about his painting there. He made like 30 paintings of that mm-hmm. mountain. And you talk about Monet with Giverny. Um, yeah. You know, he did 250 water lilies. Just yeah. water lilies. That's I not know. even like conclu- including <laughs> all the other stuff he did yes. in that garden. Like, yeah. at first it seems like, man, these people are obsessed. But at the same time, like, if you think about it, that, I think that's human nature. I think we all find comfort in these things that we go back to over and over and over again. Like, look at your Spotify playlist. How often are you getting the same songs coming up? You know what I mean? Yeah. Or even just it speaks to their dedication. Like you're saying, Cezanne was a hard worker. He took it very seriously. And all these artists did, I think. Right. And it was, so it was this, it was a comfort. And I think it was all that. It was also the perfectionism, like getting the yeah. light just right, getting the color just right you know, to, to be able to, um, to do, I, there's this really beautiful quote from Van Gogh in one of his letters to his brother talking about the sunflowers and how they wilt by the end of the day. So he only had just so much time to capture them perfectly. And I think that's why he did them so frequently is because he couldn't sit there and you can't take a sunflower and spend days painting it. You have a limited amount of time. So you just do it over and over again. Yeah, because with the practice comes mm-hmm. improved skill and improved speed and and probably a certain amount of frustration of <laughs> I'm sure. trying to get it and then you run out of time. Yeah, and, I am I am full disclosure not the artist in the family. I have a brother who's quite talented, and so um, uh, I don't I don't share that particular frustration. But maybe it's sort of like an experiment gone wrong. I spent so much time, and then it just all comes out a mess in the end. <laughs> well. As an artist of nowhere near their caliber, what I can say is like, I do feel like the things that I struggle with in some ways are things that just hold my attention because it's that challenge, you know, you feel yeah. that drive to, to, you know, reach the next level, reach the next plateau. You're mm-hmm. captivated by something that, that doesn't come so easily to you. Mm. Um, yeah. At least that's my experience and what I've heard from a lot of other people and you know Cezanne, he he was a worker he he felt that need it, it wasn't like you know there's some artists you read about and it's like okay well they're they're painting a commission they needed to do this they needed them to pay right. the bills Cezanne inherited 400,000 francs so he really never had to worry about money it was more about what he wanted to accomplish for himself yeah and that was that's a huge sum of money back then it would be a huge sum of money today, but like back yeah. then, it's just uh, an almost incomprehensible amount. <laughs> yes. So, what happened to? Sorry, I'm, yeah, this, is, go this ahead. is a scientist in me. I have so many questions. Like, I wonder what happened to the bank? <laughs> Did it get taken <laughs> over? <laughs> I I think it was a situation where it was like I I think you know his father passed away. The bank you know it went to somebody else to yeah. to run. Um. And it was probably bought out of his share. You know, this is what happens when you you do a podcast with a scientist. Like, oh, I have so many questions. <laughs> I always have so many questions. I'm I'm going to be going to you with more questions too. Sure. So, like, you know, just to to sort of wrap up this little bit about his background and his how he got where he was. As I said, he applied to Beaux Arts. Um, he was rejected, I think, twice. He ended up going to the Academy. 
Suisse. I don't know. Suisse. Suisse. So he ended up going to the Academy Suisse, which, um, you know, it was more open and accepting of different artists. That's Mm -hmm. where he met Pizarro. So, you know, he he's learning from other great artists and I guess great artists in the lens of history. But at the time, it was just like some other dude who was a little bit older and also making paintings that nobody was buying at that time. But, um, you know, he he struggled for a little bit and then he went back. He worked at the bank for a little while. He did almost give up on the arts because he was rejected by Beaux-Arts multiple times. But he just felt that drive to create. And as he met other artists, you know, Renoir, Monet, they actually, all of them were rejected by the Academy. (laughs) And so they... In in 1863, the people who were just tired of being rejected by the Paris Salon set up the Salon of the Rejected no. next to the official salon. And so it's – but in hindsight, it's like it's full of some of the greatest artists we know of that time period. You know, Cezanne obviously was there. That's why – that's why I'm mentioning it in this story. But so was Monet, Manet, Pizarro. Like, it was quite the show of these people that were not doing the traditional academic studied historical paintings that were celebrated in that time. They were the avant-garde. They were a little bit ahead of their time doing stuff that was derided as sloppy and yeah. not fully polished, completed paintings. Yeah, if you sort of, so um, so you might be able to tell I took French in school. We did a little bit of yeah. French art history as well. And if you see kind of what comes before the Impressionist and post-Impressionist period, it, it is really quite a departure um, from the, sort of the previous norms of painting. Oh. So, so yeah, oh, I yeah. can see where they'd be like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, but it, I mean, if I always like to talk about whenever I feel like longtime listeners are going to be bored with this fact, but for anyone who hasn't caught the older episodes, whenever I talk about the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists, I always like to to think of it in that historical lens of, you know, how technology shapes our world mm-hmm. and what our priorities are. Yeah. Because if we talk about, you know, just in the historical timeline, 1860s, give or take right here for the mm-hmm. Impressionist movement – you know, the daguerreotype, the photographic process was kind of a new innovation. That's mid-19th century as well. And so those really early photos in like 1840s, you're talking very long exposures, black and white, but the camera fairly quickly improved in the abilities as they started to make prints on other media and got away from the mercury vapors and stuff like that (laughs) but the camera at that time was able to capture the light and shadow it's able to capture the line the shape the forms the proportions much more accurately than any painter could in a fraction of the time what the camera couldn't do was capture the color It couldn't capture Mm. the emotion. It couldn't capture the mood. It couldn't do these abstractions that take human intelligence. And that's where we saw European painters shift from trying to 
capture an accurate likeness into, you know, capture the mood, capture the colors, capture the feel. Well, you know, what's interesting that you say about that is um, we talk about capturing the colors. So up until the 1800s and around the time of Van Gogh and Cezanne, color was a really hard thing to capture. There was no good green, really. There really wasn't a good orange. Um, And there was a good blue, but it was made up of ground lapis lazuli. It's called um, ultramarine. And so it was ridiculous expensive. And I believe more valuable than gold. Yeah, at one point. Mm -hmm. And um, what's interesting about that is people kind of say like, oh, you just ground up the lapis and throw it in. Um, At the time, they would have been using, not in for Cezanne, but earlier they would use egg egg yolk as the base. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can't, if you just ground lapis lazuli, you get gray because um, lapis is a mixture of lazurite, which is the blue, and then like fool's gold or calcite, which is a white and a gold streaks in it. So you actually do this really complicated extraction process to get the lazulite out before you could grind it up. And that even, and that made it even more expensive because it had to be processed as well as being just rare in general. Yeah. If I, if I read correctly, I think for like every kilogram of lapis lazuli, they would get, what is it like three grams? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it was crazy. <laughs> you know, most of my audience is an American. So like <laughs> kilograms and grams, um, the rest of the world that uses logical math system knows this, but a kilogram is a thousand grams. Yeah. And three. So out of every thousand, you're only getting three usable. Yeah. Like yeah. that's, that's an insane ratio there. Yeah. But then in the 1800s, they got so sick of this that um, the French industrial society offered a 6,000 franc reward to who could ever could come up with a synthetic version and so somebody did. And that's where uh, we get the French ultramarine. French ultramarine, which artists don't like as much because when you grind up something like lapis lazuli, since it's a natural mineral, everything is going to, the particles are going to be different sizes. And that actually adds depth to the paint because the light refracting is going to refract in different ways from the different particle sizes. When you make French blue, you end up with particles of all the same size. So the criticism of French blue for ages is that it's been flat, essentially, when you use it as a color. The color is correct, but the depth of the paint is off. So in the 60s, um, Eve Klein worked with a chemist to develop (laughs) a resin. So a resin medium instead of like an oil-based medium. And um, so this allowed the, the depth to approach the original ultramarine. Yeah, and he developed uh, what is known today as International Klein Blue. And yes. Eve's Klein, mm-hmm. it, it's a beautiful blue um, and, yeah. it, it, you know, has that depth to it, but it, it is his patented color and, yes. you know. Um, <laughs> the ultra, ultramarine was, was so prized because it, it, it's, a, it's what they call a true blue. Like it doesn't have yeah. any green undertones, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of rare, so... But yeah, um, but they did come up with a okay green and a sort of okay orange. We can talk about I, if you if you'd like to. The green is really interesting because it's incredibly toxic. But we can talk about the painting first. Is that so. Shields green? Yeah, Shields green. Uh, yeah. So again, this is right around the same time. I did a, a mini episode a while back, probably a year ago, about killer wallpaper and Shields <laughs> green. Um, 
But that that is the same time period as they're developing these synthetic pigments. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists embraced those synthetic pigments because yeah. all of a sudden it's all these colors that are, are widely accessible. Um, yeah. And as you said, there were some people who were like, eh, I don't know if it's the same depth of color. But the other thing is there's the like, how is it going to hold up over time? Mm-hmm. Because some of those colors, as they're exposed to ultraviolet light and all of that, they're going to fade more, especially mm-hmm. if it's a dye based pigment mm-hmm. yeah. compared to a mineral based. You know, when we talk and for people that. I should let you explain the short version of the difference between a dye-based and a, a mineral-based pigment, you know, yeah. just so we yeah. understand that as a reference point. Yeah, I mean, it really is just where where does it come from? So, you know, like I said, lapis lazuli is a mineral that's ground. Well, the lazuli is extracted and that mineral is ground into a powder and put into a base, such as an oil base or a resin base. The properties of, of that mineral mean that it adheres a little bit better to a wide variety of canvas yeah pots i mean whatever substance you want to use dye based because you're extracting the dye usually from a plant and you're extracting um smaller molecules essentially proteins right that account for the color of the plant the adherence property i think is just more variable although i will say the the um the mineral ones can be a little bit variable too so like chromium yellow uh, well, it hears really well, but it turns dark over time. Yeah. So like, so again, we, you know, I'll keep going back to Van Gogh's sunflowers, but it, chances are they were much more yellow when he first painted them. And they just kind of turn brownish as the paint interacts because there's the adherence properties. And then there's also the interaction properties of the compound, right? So it, something could stick really well, but then also be a little bit what we call excitable, where it likes to interact with other things. It's like, oh, look at that, another molecule. I'm going to go over and say hello. And and then <laughs> it's interacting with the air and it's changing color and it's changing Interesting. kind of the depth of the of the paint. And there's things that are really inert or they're just like, like the introverts of the chemical world. They're like, no, I'm good over here by myself. I don't, I don't, I don't need to be with anybody else. We're, we're fine. Okay, <laughs> so... And so that's really interesting. This is one of those moments where I'm having that realization of a gap in my knowledge and my history, because I always thought of it in this very simplistic term. I always thought of it in terms of like a a mineral-based pigment. It's basically a ground-up rock, you know, mm-hmm. whereas a dye is a ground-up plant. And what's going to break down faster? The plant. Um <laughs> But then, because I, I, w- I was always thinking of primarily the way that things fade because of exposure to light. Mm-hmm. But then as I'm hearing you ex- explain this, I had the realization that, of course, there are other chemical reactions because the atmosphere and, you know, the bonding of yeah. other elements from the air, essentially, is mm-hmm. going to cause a chemical reaction that's going to alter the colors just like, you know, in a photographic chemical reaction, you've got the silver compounds that are reacting and changing colors. I mean, you know, obviously it's a very different process here, but 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 that that one of the variables here is the way that those elements are going to interact with mm-hmm. other things 
colliding with them. Yeah, because you have really, you have some really long lasting um, plant dyes too, right? Yeah. You see them in textiles from thousands, thousands of years ago. I love all that stuff about color and the impressionists and post-impressionists did too. So after the break, we're going to get into looking at how those different colors were applied in Cezanne's painting, Mont Saint Victory. I still will never get that name right. I'm going to have you say it after the break. Uh, Okay. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Okay, so what is the, what is the victor, victor? Uh, Mont Saint-Victoire. Victoire. Okay, yeah. Mont Saint Victor. Still wrong. Um, okay. French is not. It's a lot of weird nasal sounds that you don't normally make in English. I, well, I shockingly enough, I did not study French. Um, I, I I am a typical American. I speak English and I speak bad Spanish. <laughs> I, I I know how to say like I'm sorry. You're going to have to slow down because I mm-hmm. don't. I don't really speak the language. Um, But looking at this painting, what's jumping out at you as you look at this? Like, you know, I I noticed Mm -hmm. the blues and I -hmm. I wonder why the sky is the same blue as the mountain. Why doesn't the violet light scatter through the atmosphere? It's higher energy. It is higher energy. Um, That is very true. Uh, Then there's two reasons for this. One is that the sun doesn't actually produce as much violet light. It produces more blue light in the spectrum. And the second is that our eyes are actually really highly tuned to blue as opposed to violet. Um, And so we don't see violet light. We can see purple, but that's usually the refraction of the blue and the red as opposed to actual like violet light. So. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Cause you know, we've got the, the red, green and blue cones in the eyes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. Essentially. Okay. So we're seeing those lovely blues in the skies. Mm-hmm. What else is jumping out? Well, like what as you look at this, what do you see? What do you notice? Yeah, I think for me, again, having just done this deep dive into pigments recently, like the green, it's so green. And I think 
that having read how long it took to get a good green pigment <laughs> makes me appreciate it more. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I really love the brush techniques that he's using to evoke a sense of a town and to evoke a sense of a forest without being so literal about it, which I guess is the whole impressionist thing. Yeah. I think you're right. Like there is something about the brush technique, mm-hmm. um, the way that he's moving the brush. Each brush stroke is essentially defining like a plane. Yeah. Right. Like the brush strokes go along with the different planes. And when I say plane, I mean plane in like the geometric sense of like a two dimensional surface. Mm-hmm. So we've mm-hmm. got like the horizontal plane of the ground, the vertical planes of of the mountain. Yeah. And yeah. And Cezanne, as an artist who was very methodical, was known to describe like trying to paint nature and reduce things to these simple geometric Mm -hmm. forms. He tried to reduce things to, you know, a sphere, a cone, a cylinder, a cube, um, and be very almost scientific, analytical of what he's seeing in front of him. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And and it to me it evokes a lot of just intention being very because because if you're gonna evoke, you know, a, a whole forest just by like singular brush strokes in a plane, like if you're really intentional about those brush strokes, right? You can't just kind of go wherever you want. Um and yeah, there, to me, I think there is a lot of science in this painting. If you if you're talking about perspective and and geometry and getting that towards pleasing to the eye and that's not an easy thing to do and we we tend to think there should be sort of a mathematical way but it turns out if you are for example um, a logo designer or web designer and you use the mathematical formulas embedded in a program to, to lay out a logo say or a business card oftentimes it looks wrong to us and, and so people will kind of tweak it here tweak it there to make it look better. So it's interesting to think about all of the things that have been going through his head as he was painting this and trying to get what he considered to be a perfected look. Yeah, and I think I think that's part of the reason that he kept going back to that mountain also. Mm-hmm. As I said, he painted this like, he painted it like 30 times. And wow. I think of it because, you know, it it's probably it was looming large over his town. You know, it's not yeah. the biggest mountain out there, but um, you know, for that region, for that area, it was the biggest feature of the landscape. Mm-hmm. But also from what I've read, Cezanne was just really fascinated by the way that you could see the rock, the rock forming like these different planes, you know, mm-hmm. you could see the different faces to the mountain yeah, And he was trying to capture that and capture that just right. And I think what's also interesting as I'm looking at this, I get this sense of almost like the atmospheric perspective in terms of like the mountain is yeah. receding into the sky because, you know, this is a little bit of a distance view mm-hmm. of that of that mountain. We're looking across houses and and pla- like the you know, we're looking across the landscape and the mountain is the farthest point that we can see. And it's, it's receding into the blues of the sky. 
from a distance, it's almost like the mountain and the sky become one. Yeah. Uh, like it, it, the whole, the whole landscape almost, if you were far enough away, it almost becomes kind of like a, like a Rothko type of work or something like that, where it's just these fields of different colors. Yeah. You know, it, it's broken into these bands that are kind of interesting. So did you know <laughs> that the reason that there's always clouds over mountains, especially ones of a certain height, right? So you have the, the leeward side and the windward side of a mountain. So like the windy side and the sheltered side, right? Yeah. On the windward side, the air is rushing up and cooling as it rises because the atmosphere is thinner. And when the air cools, it can't contain the water droplets anymore because the, the molecules are getting compressed. And so it forms a little cloud. And that's why even despite whatever other weather is around it, um, mountains of a certain altitude will always have like a little cloud. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And so we see those little allusions towards clouds in here yeah. too, as he's doing yeah. those little gray brush strokes and stuff like that. I guess I, I never noticed that before, but as you say it, it makes sense. Um, and, and, and again, that's getting at like just the way that all of these different elements are coming together in these surprising ways that he's picking up on. He's studying. Mm-hmm. And Cezanne was not like Monet going to paint it in one one moment. Um, mm. Monet was trying to capture a moment in time. Yeah. And I, I love this comparison and I'm not going to try to take credit for it. I read it somewhere. can't remember the source, but someone said while Monet was trying to capture a single moment in time, Cezanne mm. was going back repeatedly to make something that was truly timeless mm. that he's showing multiple days and multiple, sometimes multiple seasons and multiple times of day in this work. It becomes the synthesis of different views. Right. And you can kind of see that because to me, I get a sense of movement of the clouds across the mountain, like kind of like a time-lapse photography, right? We have really fast. And I think because he's using to the lighter gray on the right side of the painting and then moving into a darker gray, you do get the sense of time of, um, you know, twilight kind of coming in and, you know, the, it's about to get dark. Um, that's what I sort of pick up with the clouds. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's just this interesting tension to me as I look at it, because on on the one hand, it, it feels it feels very studied and analytical. And at the mm. same time, it feels almost calm or like it, it feels in some ways a relaxed painting, you know, because. Yeah. Because of the visible brush strokes and because of mm-hmm. all of that, it it feels a little bit playful, but also it's, you know, played out by somebody who has clearly thought and practiced and, and, yes. <laughs> and <laughs> deliver about everything for, for so much time. So so question for you, if I may, since I'm not yeah. an artist. Um, so the use of deliberate brush strokes, how... How much of a choice is that? How much is that influenced by what brushes you have access to? How much is it influenced by just whether the artist, like how hard is it to not see a brush stroke in a painting? It seems to me that'd be very hard to not see that at some level. No, it's it's 100% a choice. 
Um, he would he if you look at his earlier work, it was actually less brushy. Mm. Um, his his stuff became more about the brushstrokes as he went on. Uh, one of the sort of modern ideals that that was out there was sort of truth to materials. And mm. I think one of the most when I think of Cezanne, I think of one of his most interesting ways of conceptualizing a painting that was different from a lot of other people was like prior to the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists, you know, like prior to this time period, as we've already talked about, artists were trying to capture exactly what a person, place, or thing looked like. You know, right. that that naturalism was prized and we wanted as little evidence of the, the painter at, mm. as possible. And then the Impressionists like Monet were trying to capture that, that fleeting moment. But Cezanne... He was looking at this and saying, you're not looking at a landscape. You're looking at my painting of a landscape and making us consciously aware of the painting process as this thing that is coming between us and what's there. You know, he's putting right. the the painter in that process as centrally on view. Um, and that was kind of a rejection of the technique that had been taught for <laughs> For years and decades prior to that. So like he was fully capable of of blending his colors. Um right. largely because oils, like you oils stay wet for so long. You can you can <laughs> layer and you can blend and you can yeah. do these glazes that become more and more invisible in terms of the process. It's labor intensive. It's it's hard oh, to do sounds it. Sounds like it. <laughs> It's hard to do it well the way that, say, uh, Michelangelo or a Raphael or I guess, you know, really a good example would be like a Van Eyck, you know, because mm. um, Van Eyck was definitely working in oils for, for a long time and doing those glazes and stuff like that. But yeah. but Cezanne was saying, like I said, you're not looking at this mountain. You're looking at my painting. Mm. And my painting is about these brushstrokes that are defining these planes. Um, and we describe works like this as very painterly, where it's about the fact that it's painted, you know, that's a part of the work. Yeah. I love it. So do you think that Cezanne really fits into that sort of classic definition of impressionist? It seems like he had a little bit of a different view than say a Monet. Um, yeah, I, you know, when I'm talking to to kids, I usually will lump impressionists and post impressionists together. What I think the for me the sort of dividing principle between them was impressionists were largely about their gut reaction, immediate response to that fleeting moment. Mm-hmm. It's trying to capture that first impression, whereas the post impressionists were going at something a little bit different. It was a little bit more cerebral. It was less about the optics and the color theory and stuff like that. It was more about the study of Mm. the scene. And, Mm. you know, in the case of Van Gogh, he's heightening the emotion. Yeah. In, In this case, he's getting a little bit more conceptual about what is art? Is this... Mm a reproduction of nature or is this something 
to be viewed? And is this about the artistic process and all of that? I, I put Cezanne more in the post-impressionist camp as I as I think about it. But I also, to a certain extent, feel like, and, and I, I probably shouldn't say this because my other podcast, Art Smart, is all about... <laughs> different movements and eras in art history but but those labels i think are reductive in a way that's not always helpful to the conversation right right you know what i'm saying like yeah it it's a schema that gives us a a good foundation but it becomes problematic if if we allow that to become a ceiling mm-hmm. to our our learning in it i feel like art is like nature classification is always going to be challenging. It's like, you know, talking about describing any human is always going to be, you know, they fit in a lot of different categories. Mm -hmm. You know, I am an art teacher. I am a parent. I am, you know, like a a community member. Like I'm I'm a lot of different things. We all occupy these different roles to varying degrees. But if I were to simplify him and put him in one category, I would put his work in the post-impressionist category. And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? the lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Louvre? British for bathroom. Yeah, there's the a Louvre. joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. I would put this in the Louvre. Uh, it's a, I think it's a beautiful representation of his work. And having been to the Louvre, I did not get to see the whole thing. I, actually I don't think probably... it's possible to see the whole no. thing. I think I've seen stuff that says like to go through the entire Louvre and see every piece, it would take you like weeks just weeks. just to go like one one second per piece. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I would. I think it's a gorgeous painting and like for all of the reasons that we've talked about, although I would love to have it in the lab. <laughs> I am a huge proponent of art being in public places where everyone can see it. Yeah, I I mostly agree. I I would actually put this one in the lab because I think there's a lot to learn from it. I think the way that he's composing his images, mm-hmm. I can and have learned from. I've, I've looked at uh, quite a few of his works. I've enjoyed it. If, if, if I'm going to be a hundred percent honest, I don't like this one. I, I, <laughs> no, it's good. It's I, art is. <laughs> I, I picked, I picked the Mont Saint Victor. Hopefully got that so, from so 1902, <laughs> from 1902 to 1904, because uh, as a teacher, I want to try to cover as many from the AP art history list mm. as possible. And this one's on that list. Uh. But I'm I'm going to say that um, I disagree with the testing people. I don't think this is his best. I don't think it's his most significant. It's fine. The brushstrokes, the, the technique is great. Mm. I think there are others that are more aesthetically pleasing. And so, which one is your, which yeah. one is your favorite? I like his favorite? still lives. I like his mm. still lives. I like, you know, his handling of of fruit, the apples and all of that. Like I like I like the table that's a little bit disjointed and and as I said, you know, that that slight mix of perspectives that is just like it's yelling at the viewer. You're not looking at a bowl of fruit. And and I think that was a bold stance for him to take as an artist. Like I I liked that. And and this also could be 
this could be bias coming in because, you know, those were some of my first exposures and, you know, you, you, you tend to be comfortable with things that you've seen so many times and the museum pieces that you've seen in person. Uh, You know, I, I went to the art Institute of Chicago. So pieces that are in the art Institute's collections are, are often my favorites, you know, um, this one, it's fine, but <laughs> I I learn from it more than I enjoy it. Well, yeah. So next time you have it in the lab, you should use some polarized light microscopy so you can find <laughs> out exactly what pigments you used for it. <laughs> I, you know, I I would absolutely love to. I I the the way that I first got into podcasts and listening to them was, you know, listening to a a lecture that I cannot find, but I, I stumbled across in the very early days Mm. of like the iTunes store on my, like on my iPod, on my old iPod. Um, and it was just all about the history of different pigments and how they were Mm. developed. And, um, I, I specifically remember learn like hearing about how the French ultramarine was developed and Mm -hmm. why it was developed and, and, whoever that college lecturer was that put their stuff out online for free for everyone. Thank you. It definitely <laughs> created this thirst for me to just know more. Cause you always think this stuff's around, but like even tubes of paint, like that yeah. was a 19th century invention yes. before that it was, it was glass vials and the mm-hmm. pig's bladder, you know, it was not exactly convenient. And you had to be friends with an alchemist. <laughs> Yeah. If you wanted the good colors. <laughs> there's there's so much stuff that that is just it's bananas to think back on it, but that's how people lived. That's what they knew. Mm-hmm. Um and and it shapes the way that we perceive everything. Well, I do want to say thank you once again, Dr. Lex, the host of the Lux Sci podcast. Yes. The- You're very welcome. And thank you. This is super fun. And I highly recommend listeners, if you enjoy the show and want to learn more about the science behind the arts and why things are the way they are, check out the Lux Sci podcast. I am going to link it in the show notes. Ah, uh, thank you. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.